For a time, it seemed like State Representative Dr. John Santiago was doing the most multitasking on Beacon Hill. The U.S. Army Reserve Major worked as an emergency room doctor at Boston Medical Center during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, while serving as legislator for his Boston district and even mounting an unsuccessful run for mayor. Now, he has a different role, but no less on his plate. In February, Governor Maura Healey elevated Santiago to head up the first-ever separate cabinet-level office of Veteran Services. The office is pulled out from the broader Health and Human Services Secretariat and will include oversight of the state's troubled soldiers' homes and overseeing benefits for the state's veterans. The change came about because of a 2022 law responding to what leaders have described as egregious mismanagement of soldiers' homes in Holyoke and Chelsea that led to fatal COVID outbreaks and awful living and working conditions. Among other things, the law imposed certification requirements on the Veterans Homes leaders and spun out the Veterans Services Secretariat. So let's meet the man in charge. I'm Jennifer Smith with Commonwealth Magazine, and this week on the podcast, I'm sitting down for a chat with Secretary John Santiago. People might not be familiar with your background specifically. So you've lived in Boston since you were a child, but how did your upbringing specifically influence your trajectory later on? So I was born in Puerto Rico. I left when I was about about one year old, and we came to Boston ultimately in the late 80s, and I was here. I went to elementary school, grew up in Roxbury for a number of years, but those were my first memories. In fact, I would trace a lot of my interest in medicine and public health to those experiences, particularly looking at what I would call the social determinants of health, how people who grow up in poor communities, ones that lack economic opportunity, educational opportunity, don't seem to fare as well. And it's at that same time that my uncle became infected with HIV, and I developed an interest in medicine and science and public health. I ultimately left Boston, actually in the early 90s, and moved to rural Texas. I lived in a small town called Lytton Springs, Texas, population a couple hundred people, one general store, one Baptist church, and spent a number of years there. But I think that experience growing up in an urban but also rural community, plus my almost five years abroad, really taught me a lot about people, where they're from, their backgrounds, and to have some compassion in my work. So we're going to have to go through a number of different things that you have been doing and are doing. You have many jobs, many skills. So walk me through the kind of trajectory from there. Did the army come first? Did medicine come first? How did you kind of reach these pivot points in your life? So in terms of medicine and public health, there's no one in my family that practices either. Again, I developed an interest stemming from my uncle's infection with HIV and his subsequent death from AIDS. In terms of the military, my grandpa and uncle served. And for me, it's something that I always wanted to do. But I knew I wanted to be a doctor as well. So the challenge I had is how do you do all these things at the same time? And so what I did is after I graduated college, I developed an interest in organizing and global issues and actually joined the Peace Corps. So I was abroad for a couple of years with the intent to stay for about two years doing that, come back to the States and enroll in medical school. But what I found is that I loved being abroad. I loved the the cultural immersion, speaking different languages, and was just curious. And I said to myself, if if I'm ever going to be abroad, do it now. And so I spent about five years abroad, went to Africa for a while, spent some time in Canada, was a Fulbright Scholar in Paris. And then I said, well, it takes a number of years to complete medical school, 
and residency. So I came back, went to Yale for medical school, and subsequently came to Boston, my dream job, since I was a kid to work at Boston Medical Center, which was formerly known as Boston City Hospital. In terms of the military, it's something that I always wanted to do, um, but I always wanted to control my fate, so to speak, in the military. And so I wanted to come in with a specific job and skill set. And so I decided to enroll in the um, Army Reserve as a medical student in 2013. So I've been in for about 10 years. And it's with that experience that uh, I ultimately deployed two times to the Middle East. I just got back from Syria about a month ago. And combining those skills, um, my organizing background, my interest in politics, after becoming a physician, I said I wanted to improve my local community, uh, what's going on in my neighborhood. I saw some issues that needed to be addressed, and I decided to run for office in 2018. So you did decide to add a third thing simultaneously there. So let's talk a little bit about the legislative run. You mentioned a few issues that you thought could be tackled, again, kind of returning to your home area, looking at it, how it had changed over the years. Like, what was the initial impetus to run? And now you can actually look back and say, did you accomplish those things? Well, I'm very proud of my tenure in the legislature, particularly the trajectory that I followed. There were some big shoes to fill. I mean, as we know, Mel King recently passed, uh, rest in peace. He had that seat for about 10 years, followed by Byron Rushing, who was there for almost four decades. When I came in, the South End, primarily, but also parts of Roxbury, a part of Dorchester, Back Bay, and, and Fenway, that was a district. But the heart of it was in the South End. And as many people are aware, the South End has gone through significant changes over the past several decades with respect to gentrification, housing issues. As you know, there was a significant public health crisis going on at Mass and Cass. And so my goal, first and foremost, was to be a representative who is accessible, who is uh, willing to roll up his sleeves, be present, show up, and get down and dirty with those constituency issues, but also being able to really complement that with work in the policy arena. Given my background as a public health practitioner, as a physician, as someone who's, who's been involved in these issues, to bring that um, expertise to the legislature. And in my second year in the legislature, we were struck by a global pandemic. And so being able to utilize my skills, but really able to be part of the team, I have to give a tremendous amount of respect to uh, Robert DeLeo, the former Speaker of the House, Ron Mariano, and the team up there. They were tremendous in um, their efforts to combat not just COVID, but whether it's the abortion issue, expanding reproductive rights, immigrant rights. It was just an awesome experience to learn, engage, and work with them at that level. And then thinking about the balance, you don't, as you know, uh, don't have to work full time in the legislature. You don't have to sit there in the chamber day after day constantly. You can also go and work in an ER, uh, run a business. You can kind of be a part-time legislator. How did you feel about that balance? Looking back on it, does it feel like an effective structure? Well, I can only speak for me personally. And what I can say is that for me, I knew I wanted to do both. It's something about being in the ER that really changes your life. You're in a place, particularly at Boston Medical Center, the busiest trauma center in New England, the city safety net hospital where you're caring for some of the poorest folks in the city, across the state. And it's always a reminder when you walk in there, what are the real issues happening on the ground? When someone is shot, 
when someone loses their housing, when someone has any mental health issue or, or drug issue, you see it in a very real way. And sometimes at the policy level or in politics, you can get stuck in meetings and boardrooms, and sometimes you might lose perspective. And for me, it was always a reminder when I'm back in the ER of what's really happening uh, on the ground. And so as a legislator, I was talking to constituents on Beacon Hill, you know, seven days a week, really. But I would try to take anywhere from one to three days a week, uh, particularly the night shift. I'd often like working the overnight shifts at Boston Medical Center to do just that. I will say during COVID, given the emergency and the need for workforce, I effectively doubled my hours. And so I was young and healthy. I had recently completed my training as an emergency medicine physician. And so I effectively doubled my hours during COVID. I learned a lot, but it was a challenging couple of years uh, without question in the policy arena on Beacon Hill, but for sure on the front lines in healthcare. Well, you're now going to be in a position of needing to ask your former colleagues for things as your position in secretary. Uh, what have you learned about how to get the legislature perhaps to move a little bit more expeditiously when it needs to? I have a tremendous amount of respect for the legislature. I've learned so much there in terms of political skills, legislative skills. It's great to have friends and allies there. A part of my job right now is relying on the support and expertise of folks like Jerry Cassidy, the new chair of Veteran Services, or John Velas, the new Senate chair of, of Veteran Services. And I'm fortunate that even as a cabinet member that I can rely on these folks, call them, solicit their opinion, their advice, and work together on issues that we both care about. You know, I love the House. I think what Ron Mariano there the leadership structure he has set in place with folks like Aaron Mikowitz and the elevation of Leader Moran. I think those are great uh, additions. Um, Leader Moran is was in charge of the two redistricting proposals that were accepted and put forth, and which led to the added diversification of the House. And so I'm excited for what they're doing and looking forward to collaborate closely with them. And there was a brief period where it looked like you might be switching over from legislator to running for mayor. So that didn't end up working out. But the question, I guess, is what would your next step have been if not secretary? What were you kind of looking at at that moment? I was completely dedicated to returning to the House. I had run for re-election. I was abroad at the time in Syria, wrapping up a deployment. And I had just returned a month ago when the governor proposed this uh, potential option of, of working as the first Secretary of Veteran Services. And for me, I thought it was an excellent opportunity to really combine my education, my experiences, political, medical, uh, policy, and to really utilize and leverage my allies in the House and in the legislature to get the job done. We have a big task at hand. Um, there are a tremendous amount of issues happening in the veteran community um, that have pre-existed COVID, some of which were exacerbated by COVID, particularly the two crises or the crises at the, at the veteran homes. But I'm looking forward to building a foundation and serving our veteran community. Now that's easier said than done. As you know, the, the formerly DVS, the Department of Veteran Services, was one department within Health and Human Services Secretariat. And with that came a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. Now that it's been elevated, 
we have a direct line to the governor. Um, she has done, in addition with the lieutenant governor, a significant job in, in preparing that secretariat and investing in it, not just with financial resources, but human resources as well. And so my task really is to build out the foundation in order that we can do the job that we need to do. I want to make sure that every veteran know that, knows that we have their back and we're committed to working with them. And I'm excited about the opportunity. So when you were speaking to legislators uh, about the budget, because it is budget season, happy budget season, everybody, uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, needing to rebuild trust in the veteran services system. Uh, and that does also predate COVID. So I wonder if you can talk about kind of what veteran services was doing well or what it could have been improved on before the pandemic and then how that really did get exacerbated during the uh, pandemic itself. Well, the veteran community faces a whole host of issues. It is an aging community. It is one that is diversifying. Women make up the, the fastest growing uh, demographic in the veterans community. It's also one that is disproportionately impacted sometimes by things like mental health and substance use. So it can be a challenging population to provide service for. And primarily what we do are provide, is to provide resources and financial benefits to this. Um, even before COVID, there had been some issues with respect to our, our outreach in the women's veteran community um, and a variety of other issues um, that are that go down to that community level. How it works is that each city and town, or the vast majority of them, have a veteran services officer. And so we work closely with them to find veterans, provide the services they need. And what I'm starting to learn is that in all, if we take a big look at it, we actually do a pretty decent job of providing services in Massachusetts in terms of the benefits that we offer here. The challenge really is to make sure that people are aware of those benefits. I'll give you an example. I just got back from Syria a month ago, and I just found out I was eligible for a certain bonus, and I wasn't aware of that. And for me, it's not going to make or break my bank, but for a, a 22, 23-year-old young man or young woman coming um, from abroad who needs to support their family, it could and so our job is to be out there, very much externally facing, showing up, being present, and making sure that our community partners know that we're there um, to walk and, and work with them. And so we had this dual task of rebuilding trust internally amongst our folks that I work with and building out that infrastructure so we could do the job uh, on the outside. And that's what I'm dedicated to doing. And I'm glad you brought up kind of the demographics that we're seeing and the changes over time when it comes to the veterans community, because now we're looking at kind of a bifurcation between the older veterans from Korea, from Vietnam, and then, of course, we have younger veterans coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, how are you thinking about kind of the different needs that veterans demographics might need? And is Massachusetts set up well to handle that, given that we have been looking historically at an increasingly aging demographic? So you are absolutely correct in that there are different needs for different veteran populations. The community at large is, is growing older. Um, we have folks in the Cape who are raging in place. Sometimes they may need some housing support. Um, some are experiencing homelessness. What we've seen, particularly in the Cape, is a, is a significant need for food uh, security. Um, I was just in the Cape, I want to say two weeks ago, and working with uh, the, the veterans um, outreach community down there. And they've seen a 330% increase in some of their uh, services. 
you know, when it comes to some of the younger folks, I mean, it's, it's important to think that we've been on this global war on terror for you know, two decades plus, right? And so you, you may have entered when you were 18 in the military. You may have been sent to Afghanistan or Iraq. And now you're 30, 40 years old, growing a family, having a, a whole different set of issues to deal with, maybe cha- challenged with PTSD, other mental health issues. And so it's important that we focus on those as well. And it's a significant challenge. And, you know, we can't do it alone. And that's why I think it's so important that we connect build these relationships with stakeholders, nonprofits across the city of Boston and across the Commonwealth. And that's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. As soon as I got into office, you know, we put a plan in there to build out this foundation, but at the same time, go out there to Springfield, Massachusetts, um, Worcester. I was there a couple hours yesterday, Cape Cod, seeing what's at the table, assessing the needs, and working closely with folks on the ground. Has anything during this kind of early process struck you particularly, something that you maybe didn't expect or something that was worse or better than you did? What struck me was the mission. Now, I've had a lot of interesting jobs that are very mission-oriented, whether it's serving as a major who's been deployed twice, as an ER doctor, as an elected official. But this mission, it's a bit different. And I started to notice it maybe my first week on the job in the office, but also out in the community, particularly at a, at, a, at a VFW event where people were talking about their service. And it just became very evident to me, even more each day, that everyone is committed to the success of a veteran. I don't care what your gender is, what your race is, your background, your political affiliation, everyone is rooting for a veteran. And to me, it's inspiring at the same time. And so I come to work filled with energy excitement every day thinking about how best can we serve our veterans. And I want folks to know that our mission is to honorably serve those who served us. And we're committed to doing that. So how did you prepare for the role change? And and how did you feel about that? You know, the soldiers' homes, as you mentioned, were some of the most fraught subjects during the height of the pandemic. So what was it going to look like in the kind of the first few weeks of figuring out how to tackle again, a real kind of skepticism inside the veterans community about what the state was and wasn't able to do for them. I took off the Band-Aid, essentially, the first week. I went to Holyoke. Uh, I met with the leadership there, the staff, the veterans, and their family. I went to Chelsea the following week, and I plan to visit these places more throughout the course of my tenure because what's clear to me is that, obviously, folks have their hearts in the right place. I would say from an operation and an infection control perspective, things are significantly approved in both places. And let me tell you, if you look at some of the survey data coming out from the Department of Federal, uh, uh, Veteran Affairs that just came out, in terms of their standards, both homes performed exceedingly well. We're talking about 98 98%. If you look at some of the customer service data that came out from a recent Pinnacle survey, they both won significant amount of awards, and I think customer satisfaction was up to 96%. I think Holyoke had almost a 10% increase from the previous year. So they're doing a good job on the ground. And so when I, when I got there, I wanted to meet with leadership, but I also wanted to meet with staff. It has been a completely challenging time in the world of healthcare. As a healthcare provider myself, who knows what that feels to work under COVID, under those conditions, who at times has felt burnout. And so part of me was to go meet with staff. The, I met with the CMO, the doctors there, the, the, the nurses who were doing 
God's work, but also the veterans, and to let them know that the Secretary of Veteran Services is willing to meet with you, willing to be accessible, I think it meant a lot to them. And so moving forward, we have a lot of work to do. Um, we're looking forward to putting up an EMR system. Um, as you know, per the legislation, we are putting forth a plan to get DPH certified, CMS certified. As you also know, we've invested significantly in building out two new homes. The one in Chelsea will be hopefully opening up in June. Um, we've received a, a federal award for hundreds of millions of dollars to open up in Holyoke. So things are on the rise. Obviously, a number of issues to still address. Healthcare at large is still an issue across the Commonwealth in the public or private sector. Uh, but I'm committed to the task. So digging into exactly that kind of infrastructure question uh, that comes up as well. So Chelsea and Holyoke are going to be getting new facilities. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of the infrastructure across the state uh, in terms of what the best places are for veterans to be getting health care services? Uh, you mentioned the accessibility of, you know, health options in general. What is the state capable of doing and what do you think needs some kind of real expansion or rehabilitation right now? Well, some of that falls outside my scope, right? The Department of Veteran Affairs operates a number of facilities across the Commonwealth and we're looking forward to building a partnership with them, one that already exists, but one that I have to get accustomed to. And, and so I'm setting up meetings with them in the coming weeks to really find out more about what they do, the services they offer and how we can work more closely together. You know, my goal is to let veterans know that we have their back, that if I don't have an answer for them, I want to find an answer for them. If that's a VA facility, fantastic. If that's a nonprofit, great. If that's a private one, that's fine. I just want to make sure that veterans are taken care of, that they're aware of their benefits, and that they can come to us with their questions and concerns. As mentioned, it is budget season, and uh, our listeners definitely don't need the full breakdown because they can read the reporting on that. But if you had to identify kind of your biggest budgetary ask and then your biggest sort of existential ask from the Healy administration, what would that be? Well, I'm very thankful of the budget that Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll and Secretary of ANF Gorkowitz have put together. They've made a significant investment in the Vet Office of Veteran Services. They've increased not counting the homes, are line item by about 11% to really put up this organization. It's a lot of work. I mean, if you think about the hiring that we have to do, we're effectively building out a whole HR team, a whole team when it comes to general counsel and comms. And so it's a lot of work, and they've invested significantly to do just that. So I'm looking forward to FY24, having the funds to put forward a team to provide veterans the care they deserve. And getting at kind of the core of the reason that we're talking about this today, that this is being elevated up to a cabinet-level position, what kind of substantive or structural change do you expect that would actually result in? Well, let me just say that this is something that the veteran community has been fighting for for decades. Quite literally, this is something that they believe in and that they've been asking for for a very long time to elevate this position to have direct access to the governor. Now, obviously, the events of the last couple of years have expedited that. And I think rightly so. So right now, we sit at the cabinet level. We have direct access to the governor. We um, are able to speak with her team, get any guidance, and work in close collaboration with the other cabinet secretaries. Because as you know, many of the issues that impact veterans are impacted by the other cabinet secretaries, whether it's transportation, health and human services, mental health um, uses uh, or disorder, housing, you name it. And so that's an important piece of this. The other one to consider is the governance of the veteran homes. It's changed significantly. Where prior to the legislation, each facility 
effectively had their own board of trustees of seven people. Now, this piece of legislation completely transforms the governance and it creates a statewide council, whereas um, previously there were seven members of each board of trustees. Now there is a 19-member coalition, um, five from Holyoke, five from Chelsea, four selected by the governor, three by the secretary of HHS, the adjutant general, um, and the executive director of Homes and Housing, who works under me. And they primarily serve as an, advi an advisory capacity um, to me. So we just had our first meeting, actually, um, last week, and I think it went excellent. And folks are looking forward to collaborating, working with each other. And again, that mission to serve veterans, I think they feel very strongly about it. And I'm looking forward to um, working closely with them. Okay, I can't let you go without uh, maybe the easiest, maybe the hardest question here. How many jobs are you currently doing and what are they? <laughs> well, my favorite job is being a dad. Uh, my, my son just turned to one year old. His name is Raphael. And he is uh, just a ball of joy. And my second favorite job is being a husband. Uh, I was gone in Syria during the holidays, and it was a very challenging time to be away. Um, and I miss Thanksgiving. I miss Christmas and New Year's. And so I'm just happy to be back. I love this job. I'm excited about this role. The governor has been incredibly inclusive and supportive. And she talks a lot about basketball and teams, but she's a real believer in this. I mean, she is committed to the team and has been so accessible. So I'm thrilled to, to play a role uh, in her administration and to support the veterans community moving forward. Are you still working as an emergency room doctor? So I'm still a board-certified emergency medicine physician. And, and you know, when I have some time in the evenings or on the weekends, I might decide to work a shift or not. It's something I've spent a lot of time in education, obviously, uh, doing to, to get to become an ER doctor. Um, and so I might work a shift from here and there, uh, but something that uh, I'm not as focused on as I was in the past. My focus, 110%, is to become the best Secretary of Veteran Services that I possibly can. All right. Secretary John Santiago, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have for this week. Secretary Santiago, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And to our listeners, we'll be back next week.